Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to an extra marital affair of Thrash and Treasure, the torture chamber musical comedy podcast that has long unwashed heavy metal hair that's as knotty as the spider woman's web of deceit. And speaking of snotty, I'm Aaron. And I'm joined as usual by a former owner of one of the souls I've acquired in the past three years. It's Spencer, the Broadway spy. Hi, Spencer. Going great, Aaron. I'm really excited for today's episode. Big fan of his. And so really excited to get to talk to him. Yeah, awesome. Well, you've had a big day today. You flew to Chicago. Are your arms tired? Very much so. But I would say even more so. My feet are tired because these airports are very large. Are they? Yeah. Were you in line lots? Was there lots of people? You know, there was for for the, the holiday week that we're in, there weren't as many as I thought there would have been. Yeah. Uh, you're a bit of a Diana fan, aren't you? I am. I saw it five times on Broadway. Uh, it is one of the most uh, enjoyable experiences I've had in the theater. I met a lot of my very close theater friends in New York because of that show. I continue to still love that show um and actually watched the pro shot on the plane on the way back uh chicago today you're supposed to be editing on the way to chicago guess what what we've got another literally legendary literary diva in the chapel off 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 chapel tonight and since he seems to love himself an extra long title it's time to give him an extra extra long introduction so let's spill the tea about this tea neck born boy who bubbled away at Rutgers, pouring over a degree in english before he lipped on the edge of a cliff to drop his first production like a tea bag and sadly the virgin weeps as we follow these creatures we love lemmings off broadway then over the river and through the trees for a quick kiss at City Hall, at which they all laughed, okay? Leaving me all aggro, plus all shook up. But luckily, this King of Grace landed on his feet in Memphis with two Tony babes in arms. Two? Oh, greedy. But that's the thing about men, Spencer. They're only as great as the last romance. But at least Ernest Shackleton loves me still. So before I'm triggered into falling for evil again, please help me prepare a huge Aussie g'day and a what's new, pussycat? To this cool cat who wrote the book on the toxic adventures of the dating world, which no doubt helped him prep for fucking men. And that's some nice work if you can get it, right, Spencer? So let's go on chasing the song lyrics of this grammatical genius who spent 2010 creating clever little lies whilst living on love and the art of murder. So before I die and I die again and again from exhaustion, please help me welcome to the torture chamber this incomparable icon and frequent David Bryan collaborator who can currently be heard at La Jolla Playhouse with his latest play, Babbitt, starring Friend of the Chamber and Harada, and now extended until December 10th because we're joined by a true legend who knows I love you, you're perfect, now change. Spencer. So put on your fanciest hat and toss your bouquets, ew, privately, please, for the delectably devilish and devilishly delectable Mr. Joe DiPietro. Yay, welcome to the torture chamber. Yeah. How are you going? I'm so happy to be here. And I love that you guys are friends with Anne Harada, who is fabulous. Oh, I loved having her on the show. And it was sort of at a turning point in, in this show as well, where my introductions were starting to get crazier and crazier, leading to this point. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so how are you going? 
I'm going good. I'm going good. I'm yeah. I'm good. I was just back from La Jolla, where Babbitt opened, and uh, back in uh, my home pad in New York City, working on another show. So all is well. Fantastic. This incredible cast, like goodness gracious me, one might say you have reached the zenith of casts. <laughs> yes. Matthew Broderick, Anna Klumsky. Uh, Julie Halston and obviously the beautiful Anne Harada. Uh, obviously, it's based on the iconic Sinclair Lewis novel of the same name. So how's the weather in Zenith City? Is it sunny with a chance of a Broadway transfer? <laughs> yes, well, it's uh, definitely very sunny. And mm-hmm. uh, there's always a hope and a chance of a Broadway or New York transfer or transferring somewhere. It's a really great cast. We've opened really well there. And the great story and uh, very, uh, even though it takes place 100 years ago, it's very prescient about uh, what's happening in the world uh, today. Yeah. Well, actually, I got a, a question about that because it, it's set in this city of Zenith. Yep. Uh, and Zenith being a word developed mm-hmm. from an Arabic phrase meaning the way over one's head or way over one's head, which is perfect because everything on this show is way over Spencer's head. <laughs> Anyways, I've never read the novel, but it's about a middle-aged American sort of in white picket fence America wanting more, which is sort of a, a pretty common uh, thread, uh, narrative thread that resonates with a lot of audiences, a sort of blue-collar dream of something bigger yeah but you look at it today and you've got even with these legendary actors does it resonate a little bit more in this age of influences and reality tv uh yeah no because you know he uh what i love about babbitt uh, both the novel by sinclair lewis and the play the mm-hmm. my adaptation of it is the show starts as a sort of middle-aged guy a bumbling dad a bumbling husband uh, you know, we think we've seen him before and he's sort of reached a point in his life where nothing seems to mean very much anymore. And he starts searching for a bigger meaning in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, we've seen that story a lot and it can be enjoyable. But uh, what I loved about Sinclair Lewis's take on it um, is that Babbitt, George F. Babbitt, played by Matthew Broderick, starts almost through a fluke uh, giving speeches at real estate conventions and they happen to be full of a bunch of xenophobic right-wing dogma and he suddenly becomes very very popular he suddenly becomes the man he always wanted to be in terms of popularity and so the show really spins off that very resonant of today very right now and the things that uh sinclair lewis wrote 101 years ago are things that are coming out of politicians mouths right now all over the world so it's amazingly you know ahead of its time <laughs> it is amazingly prescient it's also i think uh very very funny uh with matthew broderick and our great cast because obviously it's a satire well i i, I say obviously as if i've read it it is a satire <laughs> which is yes. something that i've lamented about on this show is dying in this industry, on in this world today, unfortunately. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's very much a very biting satire on, you know, American mores and values and American politics. But I also think a lot of, you know, many cultures would understand it. We're all fairly similar in many ways. So, um, yeah, it's very much a satire. It's very biting. It pulls no punches. It goes after the right. It goes after the left. But at the center of it is this man who's really just trying to have a happy, meaningful life like we all are. So yeah. it's, it's sort of what I love about it. Matthew Broderick is the perfect everyman center of it. Just a good guy trying to get through his life. And he says things that maybe he he means, but 
not as intensely as other people think he means. So it's a really interesting uh, take on our modern uh, uh, mores and values. And it's, you know, it, it is an interesting show because I think, you you know, Matthew's such a likable guy that anything that comes out of his mouth, even things that a lot of us find offensive, <laughs> we, you know, we have to say, oh, but I like him. I, yeah, even though yeah. he's saying these terrible things, I, 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 I like this man. He's clearly a good guy. So I think that's part of the fun of the show, actually. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Sadly, I'm in Australia. Yeah. I'm not going to get to see it. Oh, it's obviously <laughs> closes on December 10th, but hopefully we get a transfer over here. Are you listening, Melbourne Theatre Company? And invite me to opening night. Yes, Melbourne Theatre Company. Goodness gracious me. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, uh, we'll move on because you collaborate frequently with rock star David Bryan. So if you could pick your craziest, most over-the-top rock star writer, what would you put into it? Oh, that would be good. Uh, boy, would I love a masseuse. Is that yep. crazy? <laughs> I would love, I would, no, we, we hear that quite commonly. I would love a nice masseuse. I also, I love M&M's. So I did read someone at one point only had them pick out like red M&M's yep, for yep. them. Like they don't have a bowl. So I think like I would like to have all of the colors of the M&M's in different bowls mm -hmm. waiting for me at every, at every uh, stadium that I'm sitting at. Awesome. And not at all anally retentive. I love it. Not at all. But M&Ms are delicious. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I am pretty, I got to say, you know, what? I'm a writer, so I'm very creative and I write a lot of projects at once. So I yep. am very anal retentively organized in my closet with my food shelves, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I look, I can be too, but when it comes to my bedroom, which is also my office, no, there is no organization here, <laughs> but I really wish there was. Now, have you got any experience with metal, heavy metal, new metal, glam metal, kawaii metal, which is Japanese apparently, and I would love to cover that on the show one day. I have no experience with heavy metal, I have to say. Yeah. It's not my genre. Yeah, not at all. And, and you work with David Bryan. He hasn't taken you to a Def Leppard concert or something? Uh, he's taken me to concerts. We've never seen Def Leppard. Uh, uh, you know, he does He does like actually metal and, you know, he likes loud and Bon Jovi concerts are loud, which are fun. Yep. And uh, I mean, our show, The Toxic Avenger, is very much uh, not quite metal, but certainly written to be performed uh, by a New Jersey garage rock band, you know, oh, yeah. just sort yeah. of loud headbangers kind of thing. So in that sense, uh, that's, that's, that's uh, I don't know if I quite call that heavy metal, but it certainly is uh, good, loud Jersey rock and roll. And there ain't nothing wrong with that. No, exactly. And you know what? I, I didn't know that about Toxic Avenger, but what I've always liked, because I've never seen it myself, obviously being in Australia, I what I loved is that you didn't do a parody. You didn't do some unauthorized parody and just throw a whole bunch of jokes yeah. from that genre at it. You took it seriously as a yeah. musical or, or apparently as a sort of concert type it's by a band, but that's why it has the fandom it has and it shows in that because I, and I can't wait to see it one day or even maybe direct it one day. I don't know because I, I love my horror and my comedy horror. So, yeah, that's sort of one thing that I've always been really keen to see it because I, I could tell that this was not one of these cheesy, unauthorized parodies, which I keep going after on this show. And I'm, it's going to get me in trouble one day. I know it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's very much, you know, it's, it's essentially Lloyd Kaufman who did the original movie. Uh, it's very much the Beauty and the Beast story. And so we, I just love that. So uh, even though it's a wild, outrageous comedy, 
uh, we did very much, you know, want to take it seriously as as a store as a love story that you hopefully by the end of it surprisingly root for this couple and feel something about them, even though he's a mutant super freak with uh, toxic uh, powers. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. And and that's what you want. And that's the problem with these unauthorized parodies is it's just a bunch of jokes. Right. And you're going in as the fan of this thing. Like I'm a fan of Friends. So you're getting an overload of 400 episodes or something in, in 90 minutes. Mm. But the only attachment that you're walking out with is to the nostalgia of it. You're not taken on that journey in that musical. And the outcome mm-hmm. is so much worth it that the fandom you will get from that is it, it is genuine. It's not just, oh, I remember those 50 jokes in one minute from Friends. But I mean, anyways, we're not talking <laughs> about parodies, but we'll move on. This week I picked this album because it's Thanksgiving Day week in the USA. And whenever it comes to anything American, I'm thankful to be Australian. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I love Australia. I have three... America. Uh, sorry, I love America. That's okay. <laughs> I love America. I have three amazing American co-hosts. Uh, I picked an Aussie, a classic Aussie album this week, Rose Tattoo's Rose Tattoo, fronted by a former King Herod, Angry Anderson. So Spencer. I loved the way you said Rose Tattoo. It's like the the best use of your Australian accent. Oh, stress, mate. What were, what were we doing? Rose Tattoo, the album. What did you think of it? Um, I liked Rose Had Too. It was short, which is good. Uh, I love that on these metal albums. This is about as much of it as I can endure. I think my favorite song on the record was The Butcher and Fast Eddie. I just, I loved that, uh, that groovy section in the beginning. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the lyrics were probably some of my least favorite of any of the albums that we've reviewed on the show and looked at um but but i certainly i loved the length um and thought that instrumentally and vibe wise this felt much more like a hard funk record than it did metal and actually i would almost go so far yeah they might be a heavy metal band but this is certainly not a heavy metal record no i mean i i, I liked i liked it um i liked a lot of the guitar sounds on this album which i don't mention a lot i tend to focus more on drum sounds especially as a drummer but i felt like the guitar sounds um especially in remedy um Mm -hmm. were were really just just a little different for me which i really enjoyed i'll give it a 4.3 out of 5 wow i didn't see that coming what about angry anderson's voice yeah it was fine (laughs) the vocals aren't really what's important for me in this music yeah okay um well angry anderson listeners at home may know him from mad max 3 they made three of those they made four of those jeez no and you still saw them yes they're all great movies Mm. the third one has tina turner in it and it has angry anderson in it as well he's the one that gives the finger from the car uh and he's also in the 1992 jesus christ superstar recording which has been brought up a few times on this show by guests especially from america you go crazy for that recording. Uh, he's the King Herod. The Australian one? Yeah, from 1992. Um, and this was produced, this album was produced by Harry Vander and George Young, who are two, from the Easy Beats, two Australian legends in music. So the, like, and this was their debut album, I believe. They started off under the best wings possible. Um, seven members died from the band, including, I think, three of the founding members. So literally seven of them have died. Three of them, I think, or four. Four of them died within a three-year span 
in the 2000s. A couple of them from Cancer. So, like, and they've always been sort of a well-known band in Australia. And Ang- Angry Anderson has always been very public. Yeah, one of the boys. That that's familiar to me, but the rest of the songs I had no idea about. So I I and if you had asked me, oh, you've said, oh, look, Rose Tattoo, Rose Tattoo. They're an Australian band. Do you know? What songs of theirs do you like? I wouldn't know any of them. That's the thing. Like, I, they've always been around. They've always been popular. I've just never, they've never really been in our rotation, I guess. Or if they have been, if I have heard them play or whatnot, songs in, on the radio, I haven't been able to pick them. So, but I thought the matchup of Rose Tattoos with a marriage, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, what else? Oh, and Angry Anderson bashed his head on an amplifier in Europe until his head bled. But other than that, like it was alright. I'd give it about a three and a half, I think three. It's enjoyable enough. That was sleazy. I think you're a bit hard on the lyrics. I thought they were okay. They weren't as terrible as what you hinted them being. I liked it better than a lot of the other ones. The lyric. No, it just everything. Oh, the whole album. Well, you gave it four stars. I was really surprised by that. Well, anyways, with just a few lines and a face, it looks like the rose tattoo has been turned into an ad break. We'll be back after this. From the producers of Thrash and Treasure and airing exclusively on the Bloop Network, Around the World in 80 Plays, hosted by the adorable Lizzie B and Alfie Parker and starring the gorgeous Dolly the Dog. They'll take you from city to city, exploring the rich arts and cultural history of the UK and Ireland. New episodes air on Tuesdays, and here is a sneak peek. I'm Alfie Parker, and that's Lizzie B. And this week we're in Edinburgh, Scotland. Scotland! (laughs) Every theatre really has ghosts, but we're in Edinburgh. Edinburgh is known for its spooky ghosts. So why don't you... Yeah, I've done my research, and I might have had an experience of my own. (laughs) Right, so, I am a true believer. Alfie is definitely more sceptical, but I believe in ghosts wholeheartedly. Like, I love watching paranormal programs. We watch a lot of celebrity ghost hunters. I just love it. I just kind of think, like, what's the point in not believing? Yeah, my issue, right, I I want to believe that there is something there. I think ghosts is a nice idea. As long as they're nice ghosts. Yeah, as long as they're not throwing things around. You know, like, no, because they grab me legs and go, All of that. That's never happened to you, no, has no, it? No, but you hear stories of them being like, get out of my house, and they're rattling everything and all of that stuff, and it's just a bit... Oh, please. <laughs> right, so anyway, theatre ghosts is like a massive thing. So I'd say probably every theatre in the world has a ghost. Yeah. But with Edinburgh being such a historical place, the Festival Theatre actually has three ghosts. And I had an experience of one of them, which I'll talk about later. Oh, we had a brief experience. I Don't spoil it, OK? Yeah, sorry. Right, I'm going to talk to you about these ghosts. So the first one, the most famous ghost at the Edinburgh Festival Theatre is called the Great Lafayette. Lafayette? Hamilton reference for you. That's not her, it is, but he's called the Great Lafayette. One of the most celebrated illusionists of the early 20th century. Do you know what an illusionist is, Alfie? Yes, you know, kind of like disappearing in smoke and... 
you know, swords and it's like, yeah. it's like a, a branch of magician, right? Yeah. Thank you. So kind of like Houdini. Yeah, yes. I wanted to say Houdini, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool. He was the highest paid entertainer in theatre at the time. When was this? In the early 20th century. Okay. Do you know when that was? Do, do I know when that was? Yeah, what year are we sort of talking there? Early 20th century. 1920 something? Earlier. Earlier, but, okay. Yeah. The 1900s. Yeah, brilliant. Right. Well done. This is going quite well. <laughs> I've got my GCSEs. And apparently he was a very lavish performer. And so that brought the audiences in, which kind of justified that he was getting paid all this money. So spring of 1911, he was performing at the Edinburgh Festival Theatre. And he did his finale, which was called The Lion's Bride. And what he did in The Lion's Bride is he would swap places with a lion live on stage. I mean, you are asking for trouble, though. No. See, this is the thing. It's not that that went wrong. Oh, right, okay. So this Lion's Bride thing happened successfully, and then out of nowhere, a lamp fell from the ceiling onto the carpeted stage, and the whole thing set on fire. Oh, my Because obviously gosh. we're talking <laughs> pre-electricity. Yeah, yeah, it would of have course. Been candles. Well, yeah. So fire on stage, whole thing set fire. 11 people perished, including the great Lafayette. The lion? I don't know if the lion perished. (laughs) The lion probably just went around eating everyone. So, the great Lafayette now haunts the Edinburgh Festival Theatre, and people have said they've seen him shining his diamond rings in the dark. And apparently, people have also heard a piercing lion's roar. Right. Okay, cool. Right, so that's I, the first one. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to like question you on it because you, know, you know it's like they've seen they've seen a geezer with his diamond rings in the dark. Yeah, and they've heard a lion at the same time. <laughs> He's doing that with his rings. Well, it's not at the same time. Oh, it's really. not at the same time. No. Okay. That's Lafayette. That's the great Lafayette. Okay, I didn't know anything about it. Okay, number two. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you won't have had an experience with either of these because they're very specific to where they are. In oh, the so theater. my experience is a different ghost. The peg leg sailor. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. So, here's a bit of history that I didn't know, and it's actually really cool and makes sense when you kind of hear about it. So, back in the day, sailors were hired to operate the flies. So, the flies are basically up in the theatre, you have something called a fly floor. Shout out to Leslie Joseph. She loves a fly floor, which is loads of ropes, and it's manually operated, and it kind of brings in signs or flats or bits of scenery. So they're being flown in and out. And back in the day, they would hire sailors to operate the fly floor because they were obviously very good with knots and had experience with raising and lowering sails. That is actually, and I didn't know that. Isn't that, that so complete cool? Sense. What's not so cool is that at the Edinburgh Festival Theatre. There have been sightings of a small limping figure pacing up and down the fly floor. Is that that's actually giving me chills? That's scary. Because I, I think the fly floor is probably a scary place anyway. Small. A small limping figure. And they've heard sounds of a scraping wooden leg. We have a wooden leg. Yeah, the peg, the peg leg sailor. Who is he? Now 
Crazy Place group. Uh, we're back with Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron. That's Spencer. And we've reached the zenith because we're joined by Joe DiPietro with Babbitt, currently running at La Jolla Playhouse. So I have to ask, the cast seem to be put through their ringer on Instagram. You don't have anything to do with that, do you, Joe? Because I've seen those workout videos. They're dripping in sweat. And I'm thinking, those poor things. They're doing a play, not a musical. Oh, I saw Anna Rada was posting... Good, good for them. Yeah, they are doing, but they, they're doing a play. But uh, our director, Chris Ashley, uh, uh, has staged it almost like a musical. There are two turntables that takes place on this gorgeous Walt Spangler, all white set pattern after a very famous library in Germany. So it really is quite the workout, the play, and it's quite the production. Uh, also, because it's based on a book, there are multiple scenes. So we go instantaneously. Chris wanted to jump instantaneously from one scene to another. Yeah, so I actually think uh, Anne and Matthew and the and the cast are getting their own workout. <laughs> but good for them for also like La Jolla is so nice. You just sort of want to be in shape. I will say. Yeah, I mean that's one of my favorite parts about his style of direction is just how well the uh, how focused the transitions are between the scenes. Yeah, and then we have two turntables in this one, a small one in the middle and a donut right around it. And uh, you know, Chris was saying to the actors who. You know, it's like, you know, you have to get used to it because trust me, like it's, it's confusing because you have two, the set keeps you, you're in a instantaneously in a new spot. He goes, you just have to get used to it. Uh, but once you do, it, yeah. it'll be second nature and it'll be magical for the audience. And it is. And so it, I, I love how it tricks the theater in changing scenes. The other day I watched the the making of a musical and they said, talked about having all the screens on the stage and how we can change the scene instantly before your very eyes. And I'm screaming at the TV. They've been doing that in theatre since before there was electricity. <laughs> yep. That's what theatre was all about. It was about changing the scene right before our very eyes. We didn't need a screen to do that, you poor kids. Goodness gracious me. Anyways, <laughs> love the PR company, love the show. Anyways, we're going to move on. One quick question. What's been your experience with standing ovations? Do you feel like they're a bit overdone these days or that we're really earning them? No, I love standing ovations. I love standing ovations. As a writer, I love them. Yeah. You know, yeah, I do. And like, I always think, you know, people pay good money, more and more money to see shows. Uh, I sometimes like to stand, by the way, at the end of a show because uh, I've been sitting for two or three hours. And so yeah, I like to <laughs> just get up. I'm like, oh, this feels so good. Why do I have to do the sitting down? You know, and I think if it's a rousing show that brings you to its feet, I find them, I find standing ovations very fun. I know some theater files don't, but um, yep. I thoroughly enjoy them. And I would like to put that on the record uh, that I personally thoroughly enjoy them. And I think everyone should always stand at the end of any performance of any show I've written. Yep. Okay. Well, duly noted. If you're ever in <laughs> Melbourne and I'm in the audience when you're there, I will stand up. Go stand, or I'll give you the evil Italian eye. That's. I will feel so dirty for it, but I'll do it because <laughs> you gave up your time to come on my show. That's it. Like, yes. we, and, do, and then can I ask? So, do, do you hate uh, standing ovations? I th I think now it looks regimental. It looks like the audience uh -huh. is sort of 
standing up because they have to stand up. And this is the point where we said it doesn't feel like that excitement is there anymore. And it saddens me because like the few times I've given standing ovations, I when I was younger was because friends were in it. So we were really excited for them. And but there was at least that excitement there. It wasn't they finished the show, so now we stand up. So I was sort of like, where do we go from there if that's the normal? What do we do if that's the normal? Gotcha. I, I will say. What I don't like is standing ovations during a show. Yeah. Like, I'm like, everyone sit down <laughs> until the end. Yeah. <laughs> even if it's a great song or a great moment, like, there's no, re- you know, clap loud and long. There's no reason to uh, stand, um, you know. I, then I think, like, it, it, Ollie, it, it, it interrupts the flow of the show. So, yeah. Yep. And that's it. Uh, one thing I don't like is people dancing during the show. So, oh, yeah. But I'm, I'm commenting more so on Moulin right. Rouge because there was a guy next to us, and every song that came on, he was so excited and he was dancing along. And I'm sitting, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I cannot wait till we swap seats at interval. Anyways, we're going to move on while we're in the suburbs. Well, we're meant to still be in the suburbs with Babbitt. We're going to do I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change. Uh, so, I've reviewed it this week. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, hi, Joe. <laughs> Look over there. Oh, no, I pointed. You were meant to see me point i've turned the cameras off that whole joke didn't land and i've done it like three times in this review anyways <laughs> i'm gonna jump into it a rip off the band-aid this show is so intimidating to make i tell you that uh, anyways i proposed we engaged with this dearly beloved review because about 4722 first dates ago or two years before Spencer was born, we had tickets to see Lady Julia Morris, already a stand-up icon in Australia, perform in this unknown show we'd never heard of. Until I fell sick, and till near death do we depart with our tickets. So I've never had a chance to see or hear any of these songs. So I put a ring on the Spotify, hoping it'd be wedded bliss and not end in divorce. Immediately with the opening, I could picture what this show is and where it's headed. Two genders, both alike in dignity, politics aside, preparing for a first date. The nerves, anticipation, needless and necessary tweaks to one's appearance and personality. The battle against expectations, triggered, uh, I mean, it's all very familiar. Laid out in a whimsical and melodic way. A stud and a babe started, and I felt seen. And single man drought started, and I felt seen. Why? Because I'm a guy came on, and I felt seen, until... Tear jerk gave me sympathetic pains. Oh, wait, tear jerk. Okay, that's very different. I mean, both make me cry. Here I felt that the violin could have taken over in the lead, if only to emphasize the tongue-in-cheek nature of satirizing the awkward world of dating. However, the male piano female violin vibe works perfectly. I love it. Don't change it. Look over there. As the relationships progressed, I couldn't help but hear and see versatility in these expertly crafted songs. I can hear same-sex couples, mixed-race couples, an expansion of bands. Some of these songs could only be enhanced further with a drum or even a ting of a triangle. I'm available for hire. Even interpretational genre-fying into jazzier, country, blues, even rockier moments. Many shows of this size or even structure haven't appeared so versatile. Even some big shows aren't lendable to much imagination. Let's be honest. Directors and musicians deserve shows that they can take on and interpret. Why? Because I'm a guy could easily be a barbershop quartet number. Here we have a brilliant song, a familiar if-like narrative, and a knowing wink in eye from both cast and audience. However, Marriage Tango commits that most awful of offences. Legos? 
minus two stars. Sorry. Look over there. But pet peeves aside, this musical benefits from many things which other shows of this kind fail at. We're able to go on a journey with these characters. But I do wish there was maybe one or two more couples, if only to prove my theory about how flexible this show is, even in in its original form of four people and two instruments. Whilst they're vignette, sure, the richly painted feelings and character development are able to shine through, allowing these songs, and me the listener, the chance to breathe with them as they progress. But again, Legos, really? Four stars. Oh, you're still with us? Good. I'm still here. <laughs> you don't like Legos. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's not the plural. It's not the correct plural. Lego is the correct plural. Oh. But we oh. always hear it from Americans and it always makes me shudder. Oh, hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah, we would say Legos here. <laughs> Goodness gracious, that's like a ghost walk through me or something. Yeah, so okay, on, on this show, I love this show because I've lived with a married couple for 38 years. I see a lot of them in it. Although a lot of them is more you change, you change, you change, as opposed to I love you, you're perfect now, change. They're basically oh. just <laughs> telling each other to change. That's very funny. It's the change part. Yeah. That's it. Um, yeah, so given like what they've done with Sunset Boulevard at the moment, or even even with Company, which is something that I have contentious with because Bobby was a bit too close to home for me. If you had taken him mm-hmm. out of Company and exp- if Sondheim had have taken him, sorry, not you, and focused on these married couples, I might have enjoyed it a little bit more without feeling like I was triggered. Here I wasn't triggered. This did that a lot better in terms of, but it wasn't exactly clear. I, I didn't know there was more than two couples. That's the thing. So that wasn't exactly clear. And oh. I think that's where I was sort of feeling like if there was a bit of difference in genres or interpretation, maybe I would have gotten that. Um, I hope you're not offended mm-hmm. by any of these. I, I promise we, we take this all very seriously. No, no, I think, you know, that show, yeah, you know, I wrote that show with uh, Jimmy Roberts, and one of the reasons there's only four people in, people are like, oh, you wrote it, so it gets produced a lot, because there's only four people. I'm like, no, no, I always love theater when, I always love seeing actors, uh, when people play multiple roles, and get a chance to really stretch themselves, Um, so that's why we did that, and so there are four people, two men, two women, and the first act was uh, about, uh, is, is specifically about being single, and all of the trials and tribulations of trying to find everyone, and then at the the end of the act you find someone a couple gets married and then the second act is about what happens after that which is marriage you know kids sometimes divorce you deal with widowhood all that kind of stuff so even though it's a review and has four different you know people who keep morphing into different characters it's um uh that but and in 19 sorry 2018 we actually um did a new version of it, which hasn't been recorded yet, but there's another version to license and a lot of theater companies do, though some still do the old one, where we actually added um, to sketches now with gay couples and um, sort of the same sketches. We added a couple more. We, 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 we trimmed some of the more dated stuff and put some newer stuff in. So it's essentially the same show, which was sort of fun to do too, because what happened like over the years, theater companies would say, hey, can we make this couple the same sex couple? And we were like, sure, that's this enough. Uh, like, for instance, the two parents, the baby song, which is a sketch uh, pr- prior to that, that's a sketch about 
what happens when you have a couple you know and they're really fun and then they have a baby and then you go to visit and all they talk about is the baby. Yep. So, um, <laughs> you know, we made that two guys. <laughs> they're just gay couple. All they thought they're really fun and all they talk about is the baby now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, we modernized it a bit, but it's still the same show. But uh, that was the first show I ever wrote. And I was uh, very fortunate it was uh, so successful and had such a long run. Yeah. Well, it's because it's so relatable, I think. Yeah. But you need to call it now. I love you. You're perfect. Now changed. Oh, now, now it's changed. That's true. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I got you. Well, that's good. That's right. Yeah. No, and it's also that show. What's been great about that show over the years is we call it, as you said, it's relatable and we call it the nudge show because the actors in the first production of that kept going to us. You know, people are nudging themselves, nudging their whoever they're with. They're like, that's you. Yeah. That's you. That's my aunt. You know, oh, that's us. So that's so we used to, we start out calling it the nudge show because and I'm like, oh, that's what the show is. The more it mirrors everyone's life, yep. the better. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, and look that that was reflected in it definitely, and and right. that's obviously mm-hmm. a lyrical thing more than a, a music thing, um, obviously, which um, yeah, like as I, I just wanted to like it was my it's my creativity whenever I listen to yeah. any of these shows, like I want some of them I want to play with, and you know what I mean, and and get my hands on it, but I'm not allowed to obviously because that's I'm not a professional in fucking New York, am I part of a language? <laughs> Uh, I don't know if the PR company wants us to swear or not, but I'm I'm being very well behaved today. Spencer, you're with us. How did you go with this album? Um, yeah, I for some reason had never heard of the show, which was really surprising to me after being familiar with your work for so long, and then also just generally New York theater for so long. Um, and I also listened to the album for the first time and loved it. Um, and I, I was reading about it. It was in the West Side Theater, great theater for a long tenant. You know, right now Little Shop is there and has been there, being the perfect production of Little Shop that's running in. A tiny off-Broadway theater like we need there to be. Yeah, I, I loved the the score and it was so different than a lot of the other stuff that you've written that that I was yeah. familiar with that I really I really enjoyed. Um, just like the difference, it doesn't sound like you know. Uh, there's so many new musicals right now, and a lot of them sound the same. And um, yeah. considering yeah. I see all them sometimes you walk out of them like oh this sounds like the one that i saw last week yeah jimmy jimmy roberts uh, the composer we were writing it you know because each of the sketches were different he said i wanted each of the songs to have a different sound yeah they're a genre but they're you know they're in pop music genre but they're uh, uh also quite you know theatrical and melodic and he also said you know a lot of the shows have a drummer to bass or a piano drums bass like smaller off-Broadway shows. And he goes, I want something different. And he came up with the violin idea, which is really, um, I think, distinct and quite beautiful. And, and also, you know, it's a comedy and it's it somehow the, the music and the uh, arrangement of the, the two-piece band actually supports the comedy. So all, all kudos to uh, Jimmy Roberts. Also, in a way, comedy and tragedy. Yeah. The piano and the, yeah. the violin, which my, my uh, wasn't necessarily a criticism. It was more I could like hear the potential of some of these songs being bigger if you add more yeah. 
like because they are mm-hmm. great song like at relatability but also melodic you know and yeah and some of these uh, some of the well, not these reviews that sounds very disrespectful some of sort of the reviews or song cycles aren't so flexible like i i mm-hmm. love william finn's alleges but it's kind of depressing like you, there's not much you could do with that show because it's all sort of you know you're commenting on the dead there's not you know what i mean there's not, you can't take it very many places i don't think maybe you could if you've got the balls to this one i think you could i think you could mm-hmm. so. yeah i've seen it i've seen it done in little space like you know little clubs like you know there are waiters and the waiters sort of perform it i've seen it done in bigger like thousand seat theaters so it, it, it is a very flexible show and i know when like colleges do it sometimes they'll you know have 20 people perform you know you could actually uh divide it up too if you want yeah, oh, so I I could all that because we we take these shows basically on if there's not a pro shot we we take them purely on the album right. and so that's sort of right. the, how how we have to judge this and all of that was very clear that that it could be done in that way like what's the last five years you couldn't do that with twenty people right it's no no disrespect to that show because it existed it's, yeah. it, in its own two people, yeah. you know sort of thing yeah this it, it yeah it's so versatile in that there's so many different types of married couples out there and, and i'm not surprised it was the nudge show because that nudge nudge wink wink was there all the way through it, it even just in the tone of the music very much so mm-hmm. conveying that emotion what a, what a shame i didn't get to see julia morris in this did you fly over for it i did not no no they're, they're, they're my dogs. Oh, yay. I love puppies. Uh, what video game would you like to see made into a musical? What musical would you like to play as a video game also? It's kind of two-handed. Oh, all right. That's interesting. Like, what would be, like, what world would I want to enter? I mean, I would like to see my musical, The Toxic Avenger, made into a video game. I think that would be really fun to do that. And what what, what musical would I want to see, I won't pick mine, uh, made into a video game? You know, let me think about that. Something, because it would need to be like another world. I love when musicals take us to other worlds. Mm-hmm. And I love when musicals take us to fun worlds. Um, I want to see uh, the first musical I ever saw. I bet no one has ever answered this question. Uh, the first musical I ever saw, and uh, one of my favorite, certainly books of musicals, one of my favorite musicals of all time. I would like the video game uh, of 1776, uh, which yeah. you all see is my embrace <laughs> to be a video game because I think it would be really cool to like have to go and have to figure out how to pass the Declaration of Independence through the Continental Congress. Yeah. So if someone could get on that i think that would that's a huge money maker someone turned grace into a video game joe so i'm sure it's possible oh, i'm sure they have <laughs> yes. give me one week all right give me one week and i will come week. up with a full concept <laughs> for a 1776 the musical game and ha- it can't just be based on the declaration of independence it has to be based around that musical all right game on yeah I, yeah no it's exciting that idea i'm sure people are doing it as we speak yeah yeah that's it oh anyways well one thing is clear i love you you're perfect now don't change the channel while we go to an ad break <laughs> G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales. 
a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time, and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. Landing with a thud that echoes throughout the whole cottage, Toniston instantly rips off the manky shoes gifted to him by Milford and tosses them into the corner behind a blue barrel. Without a second thought, the bully races down the hallway to the backmost room of the house and leaps behind his uncomfortable makeshift hay bed, then waits, and waits, and then waits some more, until finally, what seems like an eternity later, Muffled growls start vibrating through the thin walls of Cubpaw's cottage. He tries to control his breathing, but his heart is racing way too fast. Toniston ducks down further. Nothing should be able to see him, but he can't be sure they won't smell him. The gruff growling grows louder. Toniston presses his ear against the cold, chipped, chalky wall. He thinks he can make out phrases like, Where is it? And, Give us the merge, though not much else. It's all too mumbled, and he's shaking too much. But it doesn't matter anymore. The front door of the cottage slams open with a harder, louder cracking thud than it ever had before. A dozen or so stomping footsteps enter. The cottage shakes uncontrollably as if it is as terrified as our friend the bully is. Toniston panics. He's trapped in a corner with a slew of sharks on his trail. He makes a sudden rash decision. Ripping aside the thick animal hide curtain, Toniston leaps through the small oval-shaped window headfirst, landing on a crate filled with hay sitting outside it. Mustering every ounce of manliness he has not to react verbally as he lands with a crunch on the sharp, pin-like hay. It pierces his skin in several places, but thankfully, in his panicked state, the bully becomes numb to the pain. Counting his blessings, but not his chickens, Toniston struggles out of the crate by throwing his legs over and levering himself up, causing the coral underneath his feet to snap. He loses balance and tumbles. To describe the pain of tumbling face first down a steep hill of hard, sharp, deadly shaped coral would require far too many swear words than this author would be allowed to publish, so let's just say it hurt a lot. With one last somersault, Toniston's legs fly first over the cliff's edge. Crunch. His left hand grabs hold of the outmost jagged knob of coral. The stocky body of the ten-year-old child sways rapidly back and forth like some sort of death-defying pendulum. He gasps for air, or from shock, not even Toniston can tell. All he knows is above him, a deadly coral cliff and deadlier sharks. Below him, larger, sharper coral under a sea of giant, sharp spikes of natural metal. His head throbbing and vision too blurred with bright red splotches to be able to see clearly for too long. His face is dripping with blood. It runs down his shirt front, tickling him in the process. But all he can do is swing there. It's moments like these that a boy really needs his mum. Unfortunately, while Toniston's life hangs in the balance, on earth his life was dishonestly being celebrated by all at Gumbaya Primary School after news of the bully's disappearance had spread like wildfire through the tiny town, then onto the music industry before eventually reaching the wider world. 
Rock music fans, specifically those of Muzzletop, had flocked to the outskirts of Melbourne, leaving wreaths, band posters, and hand-drawn tributes to honour the missing son of their favourite singer. Although none of them knew the boy, many had seen him standing on the side of the stage of the band's concerts alongside Tina. Also, at the time of his disappearance, hundreds of the world's entertainment media lined the streets outside the school and sadly, outside Tina's house. Wanting any word they could get their greasy hands on, the gossip came in thick and fast as snide, bored neighbours took it upon themselves to speculate and make up stories for their five minutes of fame. Inside the house, the phone ringing 10, 15 times a day from nosy TV stations, hounding the poor, terrified mother, there was no escape. And whilst Tina was never polite in her declination, still they persisted. Call me again and I'll punch you in the nose! she promised. The school's principal, Mr. Patterson, had himself realised how cold and nasty it would look if Toniston Turnbull's former victims didn't at least pretend to mourn his disappearance. And thus, with an added paranoia of becoming a suspect, Mr. Patterson set out to overcompensate with memorials and dedications to the boy who touched all our lives with his love of animals. Mr. Patterson felt satisfied his school's image was intact. The largest memorial from the school came in the form of a service in the gymnasium. With every student, teacher, news reporter and local police in attendance, Mr. Patterson sought to show the world just how much Toniston had meant to the school. The service would have made the bully puke. From the awful school choir butchering his least favourite songs, to the obnoxious releasing of the white doves, Mr. Patterson may have been satisfied his memorial service paid tribute, but Toniston is far too cynical for that. And yet, whilst hundreds of people sat on the cold plastic seats in the Gumbaya Primary School auditorium, not one person in attendance truly knew Toniston when he was around. But all alone, in her large house, the animals all shunned outside, Tina Turnbull sits with her umpteenth glass of wine, ignoring the umpteenth phone call from friends, fans and family, but most sad of all, wondering, for the umpteenth time, what she could have said to her only child to have brought the two of them closer together. A now broken photo of Trent Turnbull and an infant Toniston only hours after his birth sits at her feet under the table. Tina simply doesn't care about the million tiny shards of glass cutting up her feet. She just wants her son back. And as if joined at the soul, while dangling from the lavender-coloured dead coral cliff face, somewhere in his head voice, Tina's cries are heard by the boy. His face scrunches up, but then it relaxes. I can do this. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Anyways, we're back with Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Spencer, and we're saying La Haya to La Hoya because we're joined by Babbitt Scribe, Joe DiPietro. I'm saying that correctly, yes? You are saying it absolutely correctly. Oh, thank goodness for that. Uh, anyways, it's now running until December 10th. So we've just got a few questions about your hopes and dreams for the future. 
Okay. Now, firstly, we're going to humanize you to our listeners. All right. What's one normal everyday thing that everyone else seems to be able to do perfectly, but you fail miserably at? Ironing. Ironing, yep. I am incapable of (laughs) taking a piece of clothing and putting it on an ironing board and making it smoother. Yep. How's that? (laughs) So I can never... uh... Working a tailor or be a maid or anything because I'm just, uh, I don't know how it's possible that things always come out more wrinkled. Yeah. You're not burning them at least? No, I'm not burning them. Yep, but, uh, and my partner, Derek, is as a result, like, he knows uh, the good thing about being inept about something like that is that he does all my ironing for me because he knows, like, it would just frustrate him too much to see what I'm doing. Yeah. Yep, that's it. Well, you ask anybody who's lived with me, Joe, they'll say, my problem is putting up the washing after it's ironed. Oh, okay. Yes. Anyway, Spencer, what about you? I've never asked you this, this question. Um, sleeping that I'm terrible at, yeah. or hate doing. No, that you're terrible at, that you fail miserably. Like everyone else could do it fine, but you're hopeless. You see all the things I'm hopeless at every day. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's taking a break. Um, yes, and I'll like agree. not having like it's not having like twelve million projects going on at once. Yes, and it's like working on one project at once. Yeah, that, that a lot of people who can do it, I can't. I need to have like forty million things circling around me. Yeah, I'm like that too, sir. I, with shows, everyone who knows me will say I juggle several shows at once. So yeah, yeah, yep. that's that's literally me in the past weeks. Anyways, we'll move on, uh, Spencer. Um, yeah, I mean, I I had, I had read up on, on the La Jolla run prior to it happening because I have some friends out there and I was trying to get them to sneak in to see it um, and tell me how it was. Um, but, you know, with, with a cast like that, and especially in a world premiere, how do you go into a world premiere with a mindset where you have this cast that that is a little bit more higher profile than a lot of uh, other like a lot of world premieres you just do as workshop sort of things um, and mm-hmm. you have you know a more high profile cast does that does that give you you more pressure with your world premiere or is that a little more pressure but i think what you know is you have a spotlight on you um maybe normally more than you would would that always pressure and more people maybe being suddenly somehow get more skeptical about it but uh you know with this cast we had done two or three readings prior to the production and several of them had done uh, readings of that i had written it for matthew broderick we had worked together before and we had talked about other things to work on and we both liked this idea so i knew matthew was attached and he you know like the script and where I took it. So he said, yes. So, um, I, you know, I, I just feel like very lucky to work with a group this, this, um, accomplished and talented. One thing which we all, which we, Chris and I made sure was that we wanted to hire really nice people who, you know, uh, incredible cast, but they're all people who are really fun to have in a rehearsal room. And we knew all of them besides being talented, the questions they'll ask about the script and what um, things they'll try with the script during rehearsals are all going to be very fun and creative and positive. So I sort of went in with a lot of excitement about this cast. There wasn't, sometimes you work with people and there's like, oh God, I got to avoid this person today because I just can't really deal with them today. But this was not true at all. It's really a wonderful group of people. 
you know, obviously seriously talented and very, very funny actors. So um, I went, you know, so it was pretty, it was a very joyous rehearsal period. Um, but, you know, when you go to a new show, I, we knew we were going to be making changes all, all the time. And we did. We cut a lot of things. We, you know, tweaked some things. Um, um, and even now when I see it up, I'm like, oh, for the next production, I'll still tweak some things. So um, the, the cast maybe put a little more pressure on me. But as soon as I got in the rehearsal room with them, it was just... Uh, really fun to be working with that level of talent just on cutting things can i throw it in there um i i speak to like i'm a writer myself published novels and and sort of mm -hmm. educational plays right and even i myself have trouble sometimes letting go of things that fit the nar narrative or you know a that feel like they're necessarily that they, but they may not be ultimately. How strongly would you say to someone you need to get over it and just cut it out? Because if you're working <laughs> with people like that and you're willing to cut material that might be funny or it might be poignant or whatnot, but you know it doesn't fit with the rhythm of what you're doing. Yeah. How do you handle like what advice do you give to people like me? People like you. I mean, I'm a big believer in cutting. I'm working on a project right now where my collaborators called me Machete Joe because I'm like, oh, let's get rid of that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, well, we, you know, you made scene, you worked on it for, you know, a month. Now, yeah, I know. We had to get it on paper. We had to see what that, what that contributed. It seemed important. And now that we see it, it seems superfluous or repetitive or as not as interesting as the rest of the show. You know, I, I think with this group, they were very smart. There was one, there's one scene where Babbitt in the second uh, act, uh, he's a man um, who's well over 40 and uh, he sort of befriends this young woman. He goes, he starts hanging out with her group of friends who are these 1920s, 20 something bohemians. And we had this long sequence where they met, they chatted, they danced a bit, they chatted some more and they danced a bit more. And I was after the first couple of previews, I'm like, oh my God, this is like, they don't need to keep all that chat. Like I literally want to cut a page and a half out of this four page scene. So, and, and it was sort of cutting everyone, every, the whole cast is in it. So I'm like, I'm going to tell them. And so I said, so anyway, so tomorrow I think I'm, you know, so when everyone to know, I just sort of prep them. I'm going to really cut a lot of that scene and almost to a person, they all went, oh, thank you. Because like they knew it wasn't working like we had hoped it would. So they were the first to say, oh, cut whatever you want. We don't care. We're in process. And these are pros, you know, so they really know that. And they know that cutting isn't an insult to them. And sometimes I'll say, I want to cut this line and they'll make a case for it. And sometimes I'll cut it anyway. And sometimes they make a good enough case that I'll leave it. But I'm pretty, when I get in my mind that I want something to be cut and the director, in this case, Chris Ashley agrees with me, I do wind up cutting it. And most actors are good with that. You know, and every time I don't cut something because an actor talked me out of it, I see it two days later. I'm like, oh, that was a mistake. I should have got it. <laughs> but it's hard. Cutting is hard. My favorite show of yours, Diana, which I saw five times when it was on Broadway. Hey. And I'm wearing my lovely Diana the Musical sweatshirt right now hey. as it is freezing. <laughs> changed heavily over the course of its run you know i saw like the third preview post covid and then saw you know three more performances and then i was at the closing weekend i was at one of the performances and just seeing the changes in that um i, I mean th that show changed heavily yeah well that was you know like thank you for uh you know <laughs> the fans of that show are so intense we're actually doing a big uh, or not we, but uh, British producers and director are doing a big concert of it in um, uh, London uh, in a couple of weeks, actually. Many of my friends are flying out. 
Oh, great. Yeah, there's a lot of folks wanting to see it, including, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to be in another workshop, but David Bryan is there and uh, it's going to be really uh, something. 18-piece orchestra and 40-piece chorus is going to be really thrilling, I think. But uh, yeah, no, unlike plays, musicals are so much more complicated because there are so many more people working on it and there's so many more elements. So, you know, when I cut a line in a play, it generally doesn't affect the costume change. It doesn't affect the set move. It doesn't affect something. But if you cut four lines in a musical, there's generally someone doing a quick change off stage. There's generally a turntable or a set piece that has to be reprogrammed. Uh, there's sometimes orchestrations that need to be written. Yeah, but, you know, so it's more complicated, but you can, I always say you can improve shows by cutting really, really amazingly so. You can improve shows by snipping there or that. So a show like Diana, which is a big, complex show telling a big story, you know, we really also use the audience as our test folks every day. Like we could tell... I can always tell, oh, they're really into the scene or, oh, no, that's um, that's confusing or, you know. So that's sort of how we did it. And I think musicals get changed more than anything uh, just because they're so complex. And I think, you know, I'm sure everyone on this call knows when musicals work, they work as better. They work better than any entertainment medium uh, possible. Uh, they're just so thrilling and moving. The, live, the, story, the storytelling combined with live music music when it all works when it all comes together is really thrilling so you have to work hard though to make sure it all comes together and everyone's vision is the same and you know diana was something we worked on probably until a day or two uh before it opened diana was obviously a real life person but you've written quite a few mirror to society projects and especially babbitt as well being that sort of white picket fence middle class society that's very mirror to society uh it does that ever become a tightrope not putting those around you directly on the stage and did that ever play out whilst developing this adaptation because i i make a point not to i'd never want to base any characters off my friends uh yeah you know what i have to say this has happened it happened actually in a couple of sketches and i love you perfect now change where there are a couple of sketches in there where I'm like, ooh, a friend of mine who went through this or something similar, you know, this really is based on them. Yep. And they'll see the show and they'll have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> like I've never had anyone see a show of mine and say, that's me. Even though sometimes I'm like, how can they not realize that? So I, I, I like you, I worry about that, but I've never had a problem. But then there are some scenes like, I love you perfectly not change. The scene where the family fights in the, when they're driving yep. on the highway of love. I can tell you that when that show first opened, the number of people who come to me and say, you wrote that scene about us, didn't yeah. you? Me and my you know, <laughs> husband. Are, like, I'm like, no, everyone fights in the car. Yes. It's a small box that we are trapped in trying to get somewhere in a collaborative effort. So every couple and family fights in the car. Everyone, like my sisters, they all think it's about them. Yep. That was actually my follow up. And has the reverse happens that someone's thought it was about them and it wasn't. But clearly, it's happened a lot. It's happened a lot. Yeah. I can imagine. Uh, Spencer? What does collaboration uh, with with all the different departments? What does that mean to you? What what is the most challenging part of that large scale collaboration? The producers, <laughs> always the producers, Spencer. Yes, it's you know musicals. What you use the word large scale, and that's the thing about like something like I love you, perfect now change four people, two pianos. It's almost like a play, right? You know, so those collaborations are between you and the director and the actors. And if there's a composer, th th those are very personal. There's not a lot of money on the line. Once you start talking about a musical that has 
dreams of Broadway, let's say, and dreams of world domination, you start talking about a lot, a lot of money and a lot of opinions mm. and people getting very nervous very easily. I always say if you whenever uh, if you're a writer of a new Broadway musical, you meet a new producer at the back of the theater at every preview, meaning that there's someone who put $5,000, $100,000, half a million dollars. And they always say, oh, hi, Joe, how are you? I'm one of the producers. And, I'm, you know, it's sort of nice to all them. And sometimes sometimes they'll offer opinions, which they shouldn't, you know, really in a well-run thing, well-run show. The lead producer is funneling all the notes from all the many of people who, you know, are well-meaning and want the show to be a success, but put money in and want their opinion to be heard. But even if the show costs $15 million and let's say 15 entities put in a million dollars, which you can't have 15 voices giving you thoughts because your head would just, you know, I can guarantee you the notes are always oftentimes contradictory what it is, how it should be, you know, how edgy it should be, how, how, how gentle it should be. I mean, you know, how positive, how negative it should, the show should be. So you always have those different thoughts. So you really need someone to funnel those thoughts to you. And then, you know, look, if, if you don't want to collaborate, don't write musicals, especially large scale musicals, because it's a constant collaboration between yourself and your co-writers. Most musicals have co-writers and your director, but also your choreographer. You know, that's a huge influence on a musical. And you often be making the same show. I mean, the, the big sort of, I um, would say advice when I have collaborators, I'm like, I always like to get to know my collaborators a little outside of the process. So we cannot just relate as um, co-workers, but as friends, yeah. people I know, we can just talk things through because there will always be issues to talk through. And there's always any show, the ones that have been, that really have been that have been very successful and the ones that haven't gone as, as successfully as I hoped, there are always bumps in the road getting to your final destination with it. So you better have people who you can talk to. Um, you don't even have to like them always, but you have to be able to talk to them like human beings and rationally talk through issues with the show and what the show is. I mean, I think that's the old thing. If you're not all writing or creating the same show, you're in trouble. If one person is creating a, you know, a big boofy comedy and the other is creating a sharp, dark satire, you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah. Kids out there, you don't need to worry about cutting your own work because yeah. one day a producer is going to do it for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll suggest, you know. Yeah. And, you know, Cuts are, I don't know, I, I enjoy cuts. Uh, sometimes you always, then you always think you need to overwrite things a little bit. Uh, yeah. And then you always find your audience is smarter than you imagine maybe they are. That they'll, you know, that and sometimes uh, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got about writing was what every song cue you write, try cutting one or two lines before it. And which sounds a little strange, but you think you need to write, I love you, I love you. And then they sing, I love you. And oftentimes if you, cut what you the, the transitional material you sort of jump to the song and it's more surprising and makes it just more delightful in the fact that we're yeah. filling in the blanks and you're not leading the horse to water what's well, great with actually uh three of your shows they have pro shots i love yeah i love pro shots you know i wish more shows would have them actually but they're expensive but when they're done well, you know, I think uh, Aaron said before that pro shots are when regional theaters do your show. They look at them to see, you know, and sometimes they'll go on their own way in their own productions. But oftentimes they're very influential. 
But, um, you know, I just do think they and I'm always amazed who sees what and who suddenly becomes a fan of a show by a pro shot. Yeah. And as a collaborator, I was very involved in them all. Um, Diana was very unusual in that we shot it during the height of the pandemic. So we had to be sequestered in a hotel for a month, cut off from our family and friends as we were doing this. Uh, this was before the vaccine. So we were very lucky to get to do it. I would, and I love that pro shot. Uh, and it's apparently one of the most rewatched shows on Netflix right now. And that pro shot has brought new fans to the show and people who had never you know, seen it, uh, didn't get a chance to see it. it's, it's, it's run, it's live runs, uh, can see what the original production was. Um, but the only thing I regret about that is that we couldn't use a live audience because uh, you, you've been in that audience, Aaron, you could see yeah. how they reacted to it, how much fun they had, how funny it was. And, you know, I think some people who took shots of it were like, oh, this should be a super serious. They think this is super serious. I'm like, no, no, it's a really big, fun, campy, joyous musical that I think is sort of how I look at Diana's life uh, kind of thing. But we couldn't have a studio audience because we couldn't have anyone else but us in the theater at the time. So that was a bit of a disappointment. But, you know, I love how it turned out. I love the pro shot. And um, the Memphis Pro Shot gets watched all the time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I think uh, uh, Olivia Perkin that changed. There was a pro shot also during the pandemic in London. They shot on stage with four very clever actors. Yeah. So I'm a big pro shot guy. And, uh, you know, at that point, I'm like the writing's done. So I'm my involvement is generally almost as a cheerleader. So, you know, you sort of like, like anytime there are cameras, like the writer is like, thank you for the words. Now sit over there. So let us film it and, and do our work. Just on pro shots, good segue for me, Spencer. Okay, a couple of years ago, there was a production of Memphis in Melbourne, right? And I've was i I've seen the pro shot of Memphis. I love it. It's a fantastic show. And we've had James on the show, James Monroe, Iglehart, in one of our best oh. episodes ever. It's so funny. Anyways, okay, so this production comes, it's opening up at Chapel Off Chapel in Melbourne, which is this tiny theatre in a mm -hmm. church. Yeah. But the footage they used in their advertisement was the pro shot footage from the Broadway oh. production. I'm like, <laughs> there's no way you're doing that production in yes. Chapel of fucking Chapel. Why are you using the Broadway footage to advertise your pro-am show? So totally against that. And they did not get my money. So I didn't get to see it because what the set was, it wasn't the amazing Broadway set, Joe. It was a wall with records fucking posted to it. Right. And you, they used the Broadway footage to advertise it to me. I'm like, don't treat me <laughs> like I'm an idiot. We're not fools. People at home are not right. children. Like JP mm -hmm. on this show, he thinks I'm crazy for feeling like this. I'm like, no, they tried to catfish me. They tried to catfish me for my $50 for a ticket. And I would have gotten a wall with vinyls stuck to them, not a fly tower or things coming up from the stage, not a big, massive ensemble. It was right. in a church. Sorry. Anyways, That's I was okay. anti I mean, that. The funny girl tour. You got that. Still, the funny girl Thank tour you. is still using footage of Leah Michelle. Oh, she's not in it. Like people at home don't be going there expecting Leah Michelle. You're not going to get it. However, can we start a campaign to get a proper professional tour of Memphis to Australia? Because I would like to see it properly. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> start that campaign, please. Producers in Australia get a proper transfer of it, even if yes. we got a new set. A proper big production of it that's not right. vinyl stuck to a wall in a church. Anyways, how important has diplomacy been? I'm sorry, how important is what? Diplomacy or diplomacy. 
apparently well, I say it wrong. Diplomacy. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> One of them. Nope. Tomato, tomato. Um, I think I'm a pretty diplomatic person, actually. I think it's a good question. I do. You know, yeah. there are some uh, creators who uh, uh, are a little like maybe more aggressively loud than me in their opinions in a rehearsal room and a little more strident and a little more unyielding about their thoughts. I yeah. uh, am very fortunate that I get to work uh, for the last few years with incredibly talented people. So I love collaborating with the vast, vast majority of them. And, you know, I always try to learn something from them. And I always say, if you can work with people who are more talented than you, because you really do learn something for from them. So I, I think diplomacy is great. And, you know, I've been around long enough and I've been through all sorts of experiences, most of them good, not all of them good in theater. So uh, I've learned to really pretty much how to avoid the bad ones. And part of that is bringing your kindest, most open self to a rehearsal hall. And I feel that the writer is someone, you know, if, if, if you're making, you know, even I'm not saying we're not, I'm not working hard. I don't have opinions. I'm not making changes all the time. But if you have this open, you know, creative, collaborative aura about you, I've found that pe the people I've worked with have responded in kind. So I would, I, I, I actually think diplomacy and such a, a collaborative, complicated field is, is a very good skill to have. And there are certainly people yeah. who are known as difficult to work with because of their lack of diplomacy that I think it's pretty mm -hmm. much hurt their careers in many ways. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, though, collaborating does teach you a lot of things. With Spencer, I've learned patience. <laughs> What's a piece of theater that has inspired you that you've seen post-pandemic um, that, that has made you feel like like we're back um, and that this industry is is moving on from this uh, thing that happened? Like, what's the Tom Cruise of theater? The Tom Cruise of <laughs> Well, he saved cinema, so what saved theater for you? Yeah, I, I, yeah I have trouble believing, yeah, I have trouble believing Top Gun saved cinema. That, that to me, is a little sad. <laughs> <laughs> but um, maybe true, but a little sad. I don't know. It's interesting. I've seen uh, some really good theater recently. Um, this is recency bias, but I, I just saw a friend of mine, uh, Wade McCollum, wrote this, um, starring in this one-person show off-Broadway called Make Me Gorgeous about this from many, many years ago, this drag queen who lived this very unusual life when being gay and wearing drag was even less acceptable than it is today. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and he's been working on it with this collaborator named Donnie for years. And they developed in this tiny theater in Portland, Oregon. And um, they just opened it. It was their dream to bring it to New York. And everyone says, oh, I don't know if you should do that. Well, you know, it's hard. New York is hard. There's no off-Broadway anymore. The story's been told. And I just went to their opening night in this little theater called Theater 46. And it was just thrilling. And the audience loved it. And I was like, wow. Wow, you've actually done this with I'm sure what I'm sure is a very limited budget, though it looked great. It's a one-person show, but Wade uh, is just fantastic throughout. And it's called Make Me Gorgeous, the name is the title of the play. And I was like, wow, this is like what theater can be. Like this, it can be really something you don't get in any other um, medium. And it's intimate and thrilling and deceptively simple. Um, and you think, oh, theater's always gonna survive. Oh, wonderful. Oh, it's, I've just changed my last question there. I'll change it to this one. What would your drag queen name be? <laughs> 
Oh my God. Um, uh, oh, you know what? I had thought of one the other day, believe it or not. And now I've forgotten it. <laughs> I feel like I should say misunderstood, but everyone probably says that. Um, but then we all feel misunderstood. So that's probably boring. I'm going to, I'm going to have to, um, think about that one. I don't have a, I don't have a, I, I, can I, um, uh, do a segue and tell you instead of what my drag queen, drag queen name would be, my autobiography title would be. This is a question I like asking people. What would your autobiography title be? So, okay. Instead, what would your autobiography title be or your memoir? Yeah. The title of my autobiography would be, I hope you're not the author. Someone said that to me many years ago during the West Coast premiere of I Love You, Perfect Now Change. Uh, I'd seen the show was a big hit out there and I'd seen it a few times and I was standing at intermission outside uh, in the lobby of the theater. And this guy about two or three times came out, went to the bathroom, came out, made a phone call, came out, had a cigarette, clearly not enjoying the show. And he just saw me standing there the whole time, had no idea who I was. And he looks at me and he says, do you know how much longer the show is? And I say, I think it's about five more minutes. And he looks at me and he goes, good. And then he starts going back inside and then with great comic timing he turns to me and says i hope you're not the author and laughs and goes inside the <laughs> theater I, was like, I wish i got your name sir that will be my autobiography title so yeah i hope you're not yep. the author i hate to break it to you but your drag queen name is right there jody pietro oh jody, P- jody oh, I had, a girl's I, name i've had had people call me jody pietro yeah i have uh, I've oh, okay I, say that so there you yeah, go oh they, sorry <laughs> I didn't mean it as a drag name. Well, there's your drag queen. Yeah, I was talking to some of the interviewers doing that line, and they clearly did not a lot of research because, hi, Jody D. Pietro. Jody Pietro. And I was like, yeah. That's that's why I asked if I made sure I had got your name correctly because we have a lot of guests on that. Even Anne Harada gets called Anna Harada. All different oh. things, and it's like oh. there's only A's. A's are the only vowel in your name. <laughs> How do you get that wrong? Yeah, I oh. always make sure to check. And and yet, anyways, thank you so much for joining us. It has been an absolute joy. I've had so much fun. Thank you. So I much. had so uh, much. Where can people? Thank you to both, and thank you for your well-researched yeah. uh, <laughs> my introduction. Very impressive. Yeah, much awesome. Good. Do you know how intimidating that is, Joe? Goodness gracious me, to perform like an idiot in front of <laughs> legends like yourself. But when <laughs> it's a writer when you're a writer i know that you guys are judging me you're judging every <laughs> sentence structure you're judging the wordplay and everything so every time we've got a writer on i have to outdo myself from the last time so i hope i did I hope I and did. you did the proof will you be did. in the episodes yeah absolutely <laughs> awesome so yeah before we let you go where can people find you on the social media uh i am not too big on the social media but if you can find me on Facebook, yep. believe it or not, because I'm old and uh, I am yep. also on Twitter. Nope, that's not old. That's not it. Thanks for being a Diana fan, Aaron. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, Spencer is. He's seen it. I'm Spencer, in Melbourne. Sorry. I don't, sorry, I don't see anything. Oh, yes. Never been oh, to New it. York. One day I'll get to New York. One day. <laughs> one day. We'll be back. We'll be back. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Alrighty, you may be able to tell we are running a little bit late with episodes this month. Episode 107 was meant to be posted last week. This episode was meant to be posted yesterday, which was a Wednesday. Instead, it's now our Thrushgiving episode posted on Thanksgiving Thursday for our American listeners. So here is some extra doubly Thrushgivings. 
A huge thank you to Joe DiPietro for joining us. It was such an incredible honor discussing his work with him and his career. Goodness gracious me, what a privilege doing this show is. And another ginormous thank you to Becky and the team at La Jolla Playhouse. We've all heard of La Jolla. It is an iconic theatre around the world to everybody who is into musical theatre. So to be given this chance was a real thrill and I hope we did good. And there's an open invitation for the iconic cast to join us, he says, with a wink in his eye. For listeners in the La Jolla or greater San Diego area, Babbitt is actually sold out, which is sad for you but amazing for the cast and the crew and creatives of Babbitt. So congratulations to them and Chookers for the rest of the run, obviously. But for the listeners, if you want to try to get a ticket, check the website in the details below, just in case, because apparently they may release a few tickets here and there. Cancellations, that sort of thing. We are living in a COVID world. Anyways... Our socials are at Thrash and Treasure or at Thrash and Treasure Podcast. Google search, whatever. The details are in the description below. We've just recently dropped two new shows, Around the World in 80 Plays, hosted by Lizzie B and Alfie Parker, which you would have heard a sneak preview of before, and Opening Doors, Navigating the Future of the Theatre Industry, hosted by our very own Spencer the Broadway Spy. Next week, Mr. J-Wags is back with one of our craziest episodes yet, unless I decide to move that and swap things around. I'm not sure. It has been the craziest 10 weeks, like you wouldn't... 10 weeks? See, I can't even get my words right. It's been the craziest 10 days, like you wouldn't believe. I need a couple of days off. But anyways, we've still got episodes coming up in the next few weeks, so as if I get to take time off, because I'll need to edit them. Anyways, to my three co-hosts, I am so truly thankful... Jonathan, Matt, Spencer, everything you guys do and bring to this show is absolutely amazing and I'm so thrilled and it is a joy and a privilege working with you guys. I don't need a public holiday to tell me when to be thankful of what you guys bring to this show and for working with me on this, Uh, but I do need a holiday, full stop. Anyways, to you at home, enjoy your family roasts and all the food. Be good to each other, so no fighting at the dinner table. Thank you for listening, and we shall see you next time. Happy Thrush giving. That's it. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.